On Twitter, I've been told a few things. Um, <laughs> yeah. The way you, the really way you say that means like either they said something that was not so nice or something that you would rather not share. No, I just don't want to get anyone in trouble for telling me anything, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. When people tell me things, I generally keep them to myself unless I have permission to be like, yeah, this congressman staffer told me that he's doing, you know what I mean? Well, like, it's funny with in, in that arena of congressmen and staffers, you know, you get into the whole world of is this comment on the record, off the record? And I think everyone's now so uh, acclimated to that that's how things worked after watching three seasons of House of Cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of people ask me if Washington's like House of Cards. I'm like, I don't know. I live in Oakland. (laughs) Podcast Junkies, episode 42. Hello, hello, hello. And welcome back. Look at us. We're on a weekly schedule. So hopefully you enjoyed my conversation last week with John Dennis of Smart Time Online. I really think it was insightful and I'm always happy when I learn more about my friends and guests as a result of having them on the show, uh, learn things that I didn't know before and just get to know them in a bit more detail because I think they feel comfortable and, and they start to talk about things in their past that shaped where they are now. And I'm just happy that they feel comfortable enough to do so. This week, we have a bit of a a long discussion. This one's definitely an hour plus. So heads up if you're expecting to get this done on your 30-minute jog or you're in a car in commuting or where you're at. So anyway, just it bears listening to all the way to the end. It's Jennifer Briney from Congressional Dish. I ran into Jennifer at New Media Expo. You'll probably notice a trend with my recent guests because, I, as I mentioned, I like to have a, a bit of an engagement with folks before I invite them on. And I met Jennifer and then I subsequently listened to her show, her podcast. She reviews the bills coming out of the House of Representatives, I believe. Not all the bills coming out of Congress but just the House of Representatives. And if I got that wrong, then you'll hear <laughs> you'll hear the correct source in the interview itself. But I just thought it was fantastic because I couldn't believe that there was no one else doing this. And you'll hear why she, you know, had the desire to do this and, and what pushed her and really just why her blood started boiling when she realized how much pork is in these bills and how how much our representatives really get away with and really like how little folks, not even just regular folks, but actually our representatives don't even read these bills. One of the bills I think she talked about was they were joking about how they had read it the night before or that morning or hadn't even been able to read the whole thing. So it's just a a fantastic topic, really fascinating. And the way that she digs into it and literally like reads everything in there, I think she's doing not to make this too bold of a statement, but I think she's doing a, a great service for our country, to be quite honest. And I, the fans that she has on the show are super loyal, and they've really, really helped her by contributing. And that's the main, main source of revenue for the podcast. It's been contributions. She doesn't have any sponsors at this time. And it's really just a testament to how much she's providing value And we talk about that a little bit later in the interview, but why it's important to add value and just give a ton of support and give a ton of, just try not to say value again, but value to your listeners because 
that's when you really don't feel bad about asking for something because you're you're providing a service in return and and she's doing it by leaps and bounds so i definitely want to do anything i can to help her out to spread the word so if you guys have ideas on how i can help her spread the word or people i can put her in contact with i really think she needs a, a lot of exposure and a lot of our support so we have a fun conversation like i said it's an hour plus and that's always a, a sign that uh, we can just keep on talking for a while so I'm really glad I got to know her a little bit more, and I look forward to hanging out with her at Podcast Movement in July. That's coming up. Stay tuned after the interview for some details on how you can continue to support Podcast Junkies. As always, you can find these show notes at podcastjunkies.com. So enjoy my conversation with Jennifer Briney. So Jen Briney. Yeah. Thanks for joining us on Podcast Junkies. Thank you for having me. I like how I say us, like there's like a bunch of podcast junkies here, but it's really just me. And I get tw like tweets about, uh, hey, you guys are doing a great job. And I guess because of the name, people think it's like, oh, that's a whole gang of podcast junkies. Well, it's you and your community. Yes. So and there is an us. Yes, I do that too. Us. It's weird, like introducing yourself on a podcast because you want to do that thing as if it's not just you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I say we a lot on my podcast and I don't know why because it's usually just me in a room by myself. I don't even have <laughs> guests most of the time. So yeah, it just happens. So what possessed you to start a podcast? Well, I wanted to get some information out there. Um, so really the podcast was just my favorite way of doing it because my podcast is all about Congress. So I've always been, I'm a little irritated, actually more than a little irritated, that when it comes to elections in this country, we only pay attention to the presidential election in which we have very little say. But Congress is the branch that we're supposed to control and we pay almost no attention. So I wanted to get that information out there. I tried writing about it. I don't really enjoy writing, but even more importantly, which is ironic considering I read bills for a living, but I don't really enjoy reading and none of my friends read. So well, not none of them, but like a good chunk of them don't like to read. So I decided that a podcast would be more appropriate, not only because I enjoy speaking, but that's also how I like to learn information. And it also gave me the ability to grab sound clips from the House and Senate floor and put them into the podcast so that you're not just trusting what I say, that I can actually take these people that are running our country and you hear them for yourselves. Because it's one thing for me to say, oh, you know, Lindsey Graham said something crazy. But if you hear Lindsey Graham say the crazy thing, you're more likely to believe that he said it, you know. So it was just a really good way for me to get my information out. And then my dad had a pretty devastating heart attack. He survived it. But in the process of bringing him back, they blew out both his shoulders with the electricity. It was insane. And so I moved home for pretty much most of the summer of 2012. And in that time, we had, you know, the tearful heart to heart where it was like, follow your dreams. And like, <laughs> he knew about the podcast thing. And he's like, I don't get it but go for it. So while I was there taking care of him, I listened to Daniel J. Lewis's Audacity Podcast. Yep. And I downloaded probably 30 episodes, took notes, and a couple months later, I was able to launch it. So I actually didn't know much about podcasting or even listen to very many podcasts before I jumped in. It was more of a way to get Congress to be paid attention to. So Yeah, I heard on an earlier, one of your earlier episodes that you, it was Tom Cole that you saw, right? Yeah. Actually talk about the fact that he had some some stuff, some pork uh, filled in, in a bill and he was laughing about it. He was proud of it. He was bragging about it because what he did is he slipped a amendment that would protect secret campaign contributions into an energy and water appropriations bill. And 
obviously that's completely inappropriate, but he got out there and defended it as if it was the most normal thing in the world. I mean, I was at the time, I wasn't reading anything. I didn't, I had only seen the congressional record once at that point. I saw this on C-SPAN and didn't believe that I had actually seen that happen because it was like, can it possibly be this blatant? Yeah. And so I looked up the congressional de- record the next day to make sure that I saw what I thought I saw. And sure enough, I did. And that was one of the catalysts for, oh, my God, how often does this happen is anybody reading this stuff? Because that's the next thing I did. I saw that happen. I checked that it did happen in the congressional record. And then I hit the internet to see who's talking about it. And it was no one. Nobody. Nobody. Not a journalist, no blogs, nobody. And so I was wondering how often they get away with it. And after two and a half years of congressional ditch, they get away with it a lot. Yeah. So. It's kind of depressing, right? Um, it is. It can be. But I think what I, I'm actually pretty positive about it. I find it all kind of funny, which I guess is how I survived doing this. But what gives me so much hope is that we're at the point now with communications that someone like me, who's just curious about this, has the ability to have her own show. You know, 10 years ago, I would have had to get a job with some radio station and they would probably never hire me because I'm messing with the government. And so there was a barrier. There's no barrier anymore. And so I'm hoping to inspire other copycats because I know that people want to get into, you know, podcasting. And so if I can make this show successful and encourage other people to do very similar things, we can actually get this information out there. And what I've been amazed by is how much I can't cover. You know, that's probably the hardest thing for me is there's so much I want to talk about that I'm very ADD. It's like, okay, maybe I'll cover this for this episode. Oh, but this is important too. Oh, but this is important too. There's so much content just waiting for people to talk about it. So as depressing as the situation is in Congress, and it really is pretty dreadful, the fact that I feel empowered that we can do something about it now feels fantastic. So you said there's a, you can't cover everything. What's your vetting process to figure out what is going to be episode worthy? Well, for the first two years, for the first Congress, I didn't know what I was doing or what I would find. So I just read everything that passed the House of Representatives, even the really, really long bills that I didn't realize would never become law. You know, I remember in June of J- and July of my first year, that's when they do all the funding bills, which they never actually complete, but they're thousand page bills. And so I would just bawl because <laughs> I would just be like, I can't believe that I've signed up for this. Like it was horrible. You're holding yourself to high standards. I mean, you, you said, Hey, I committed to doing this. And because you, you're a person of principle, you say, well, I, I told people I was going to do this. I committed to this. And so now I'm going to do it. Yeah. And I also wanted to finish something that I started. You know, I made a goal. I said, I'm going to do this podcast if I can afford it. And, you know, that was that was a tough part for the first two years. But I committed to this two year thing just to see if I wanted to do it, to see if there was an audience for it, just to see. But that was my whole gig. And it was all the House of Representatives because the Senate's very strange. And so I did that. And now that it's the new Congress, the new Congress started in January, What I do is I read through all the bills that passed, but I also, based on the fact that I've already done this with a Congress, I already know that those really long funding bills generally don't become law. They do it all at once right before the end of the year. They've done it every single year that way. And so I feel like it's more important with the funding bills to read what actually becomes law as opposed to trying to track all the funding for the government throughout the year. It's it's almost impossible. So I'm reading all of the bills that pass at least one part of Congress 
And then I'll do special episodes on the big stuff that becomes law. But then I'm also doing special episodes as I'm fascinated. So like the episode that I'll be recording on Monday is about the USA Freedom Act. Now that did pass the House of Representatives, but it's going to be its own episode because it has to do with the Patriot Act and all this stuff that I've learned that I didn't know was happening. And I have a ton of sound clips. And so it's like when I get inspired to go down a rabbit hole, I'll make that its own episode too. It's just kind of, I don't know. <laughs> it just depends on what's inspiring me. And then there's always at least one episode for each month that's just, okay, this is all the stuff that passed. And some of it's not that exciting, so I'll cover it in one sentence, but everything that passes, for the most part, is in there. I mean, there's bills about renaming post offices and, you know, recognizing the team that won the Super Bowl. And, you know, I skip a lot of the fluff, but for the most part, if it passes, I'll tell you about it. It was, there's a, I don't know if you're familiar with a service online called IFTTT. It's, it's sort of like this automation of things that you want to happen, like emails you want sent to you. So there was one, they're called recipes. There was one recipe that said, anytime the president signs a new bill into law, send me an email. And so, you know, whatever it, it pulls, goes to the services where it finds this stuff. And for a while I was started getting all these emails, the president signed this, the president signed this. And I thought it'd be interesting, like to read all these bills or say, well, I wonder what the president signed today. But at some point it's like the president declared like June 6th national tree day or something like it was, it <laughs> yeah. was like the most weirdest stuff and mundane stuff. And, and you start to realize, well, it's not as sexy as you might think. Like he's signing all these exotic and, and secretive bills. And it's like really a lot of this street was named after Jack Cousteau or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The little bills that get signed throughout the year, if they can make it through both houses of Congress, they're generally pretty uncontroversial. The ones that get signed into law that has really good stuff in it are the really, really long ones that do things like raise the debt ceiling or keep the government open. So this legislation that I call must sign legislation, because it's so long and because the president has to sign it, that's how Congress can get things signed into law that they wouldn't actually sign if it was its own bill. So those are the ones that are the most interesting. And they're also quite rare. It only happens a couple times a year. But that's also why my show is interesting, because it's what I learned is a lot of these little bills that aren't going to be signed in the, the current political climate. A lot of these little bills got attached to the budget. So I had been reading them for the entire year. And then at the end of the year, they stuck them on to the budget and they actually became law. And I was already familiar with them. So just because the bill itself dies doesn't mean it's actually dead. And um, having had all of this experience with my listeners, just being like, okay, you remember this one that got me all mad? Mm. Well, this one's law. And so, yeah, it's, it's good to kind of keep track of what they're doing as they go, especially knowing that a dead bill can absolutely come back to life. What's great is that you you're becoming better at this. So, right, like you said, you had the first year and you learned a lot about, you probably read more than you, you needed to. And now you have a, a plan of attack, if you will, for how you're going to go after reading these bills. And I imagine year over year, you're, you're just going to get better and better at this. I certainly hope so. I mean, from where I started, 2013 was my first year. So here I am in 2015. And I can tell you that the workload, it's been increasing for different reasons. You know, I'm having a lot more interactions with people, a lot more emails. So that's been what's stressing me out. But the actual reading of the bills, that's the part that I'm actually kind of relaxed about now. So it's actually very different where the stress is coming from. I'm actually stressing more about the production and marketing side than I am about the reading. The reading is what I do when I want to relax. 
And um, which is so strange. But yeah, it's kind of like a, a puzzle to me because it's almost written in code because you'll see, you know, this bill, whatever. And then there's a little code there. It'll be like 18 USC and a number. Well, that's where it is in the law. So you have to look up the old law to see how it changed in the new one. And it takes a little bit of work. But when I figure out what they're actually doing, it's very satisfying. It feels like I worked out a puzzle. It's like the same exact feeling as when I finished a Sudoku puzzle. You know, it's just like, oh, yes, I got it. You know, and um, I really I've gotten to the point that I'm actually really enjoying reading the bills, which means I'm a giant nerd. <laughs> I'll, I'll get back to that. But on the bill numbering. So is is there rhyme and reason around it? So is there like you said, when they write a certain bill and they number it in a certain way? Does that give you a clue that this refers to something that was pushed through previously? Not really. Okay. Um, in the House of Representatives, the bills that have single digits are generally pretty like important ones because those are it's done in order. So in a new Congress, you're going to start with bill number one. So if anything, it tells me kind of the priority. So if it's a single digit, it's one of the first things that the leadership wanted to be introduced in the House. And it also tells me how far along into the Congress it was introduced. So something that's, you know, bill number 46 is probably something that was introduced early as opposed to bill number 4075. Yeah. But all that becomes a little fuzzy because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of bills that are introduced. Any congressman can introduce a bill. You just put it up there and say, I want this to go to committee. I want this to get a vote. And the vast majority of them don't get any action. And so, yeah, the bill numbers... And they get recycled. <laughs> so, that must drive you crazy then. Well, now that I know what to look for, it really doesn't because you just have to know which Congress it is. But I do get people that'll be like, oh, my God, this bill's so scary. And you look and it's like the 112th Congress. And it's like that one died four years ago. Don't worry. You're good. But it does get confusing for people. That's why it's tough to go by bill number. It's also tough to go by name, though, because the names don't tell you what's in these things either. You do can't they make, judge do they a bill by name. they make them cryptic on purpose? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is one of my favorite ones in like an evil way. The Save American Workers Act changes the health care law so that you wouldn't get health insurance as a full time employee until you're working 40 or more hours per week. So you'd have to work overtime every week to get your health insurance as opposed to what the law is now, which is 30 hours per week. That's the Save American Workers Act, <laughs> which bizarre. forces you to work overtime. It's so bizarre. But because it has this nice fluffy name and they know that we mostly don't read them, they get away with this stuff. Or at least they think they do. Yeah, now, now that Jen's on the case, they don't. <laughs> well, I'm hoping to start raising a fuss. I know a couple of congressmen listen and I know their staffers do. I have no really? doubt. Yeah. So that's been kind of fun to find out. Have, have anyone reached out to you? <laughs> On Twitter, I've been told a few things. Um, yeah. <laughs> the way you, the really way you say to... that means like either they said something that was not so nice or something that you would rather not share. No, I just don't want to get anyone in trouble for telling me anything, I guess. I yeah. don't know. I don't know. When people tell me things, I generally keep them to myself unless I have permission to be like, yeah, this congressman staffer told me that he's doing, you know what I mean? Well, like, it's funny with in, in that arena of congressmen and staffers, you know, you get into the whole world of is this comment on the record, off the record? And I think everyone's now so uh, acclimated to that. That's how things worked after watching three seasons of House of Cards. Mm hmm. Yeah. A lot of people ask me if Washington's like House of Cards. And I'm like, I don't know. I live in Oakland. 
I assume it is, but <laughs> I don't know. The thing is, they always they probably mix in enough like fake stuff and enough reality for you to get confused about like, well, okay, so it can't really be that bad. But I think the truth lies somewhere in between. I guess I don't really understand the question. No, I mean, just the statement that in shows like that, they over-dramatize some of the scenes in there. And you're like, wow, they can't really be that evil, right? And then they show some of the other stuff that's actually really, really happening in Congress. And, and then you have to figure out that the truth lies somewhere in between. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a work of fiction. But when you, I think the thing I enjoyed about House of Cards, at least in the first two seasons, that last season was a disaster. But in the first two seasons, they had a lot of stories about the lobbyists. And that's something that I feel like in a lot of political shows has been completely ignored. And House of Cards was one of the first to actually acknowledge that it's a big part of the system. And what I have found is I've seen fossil fuels is just I never expected the fossil fuel industry to have the kind of hold on our Congress that they do have. And you'll see these bills that are just blatantly for fossil fuel companies. And then you check out the guy who wrote it and where he's getting his money from. And I swear, 99% of the time in his top one to three industries, it's a fossil fuel industry. So, and it happens all the time. Someone does something that benefits the drug companies and they get money from the pharmaceuticals. It's one of their top two. And you can, it's, it's gotten so predictable that it's not even that exciting when I find it anymore because it's just that consistent. The money has an absolute effect on the bills these people are writing. And the, and these companies actually, correct me if I'm wrong, but don't they actually write the bills themselves and then hand them over to the congressman to, to present them? So that happens more in the states because of something called the American Legislative Exchange Council. It's known as ALEC. And um, they actually have corporate lobbyists that sit with state representatives and write bills together. So that does happen. And I've seen a few of them trickle into the federal government. It's more of a state issue. But yes, that absolutely happens. But then what you find is that these ALEC people, they go from their state government to the federal government and they bring their crappy corporate bills with them. So that's kind of how it sneaks into the federal government. But, you know, there was a bill that was actually signed into law attached to the budget, which brings back bank bailouts, short story. And that one was written almost entirely by Citigroup lobbyists. And it was proven. The New York Times reported it. We know it. And that was actually able to be signed into law. So it absolutely happens. But the scale is much bigger on the state level. I wish it's something that people paid more attention to. Yeah. There's a lot of the stuff that people don't pay attention to, which is why I'm so fascinated by your podcast, because it deals with topics that you wouldn't think anyone would would have as a, as a topic for starting a podcast. So we'll dig a bit deeper into that in, in a minute. But I'm wondering where this interest comes from your perspective. Like, were you a political science major? Were you, you mentioned you were watching C-SPAN. So not a lot of people say they do that for, for leisure. Well, okay. So... I'm going to go in the way back machine here. But when I was a kid, I couldn't have cared any less about politics, anything. Like I was a Orange County, California girl. Like I cared about my social group and my volleyball team. And like, that was it. But my parents were conservative Republicans and every day driving me to school for half an hour each way, my mom would have conservative radio on. And it just made me crazy, couldn't handle it. So I was one of those people that just kind of turned all of it off. Then I turned 18 in the year 2000, voted for George W. Bush because my parents did. I was raised Republican. It's what we do. And then 9-11 obviously happened, which actually wasn't a turning point for me, but I did 
go, oh, that's interesting. Why are people attacking us? I thought the whole world loved us. That's what I've been told my whole life. And then I studied abroad from January to May of 2003. And while living in Germany, our country started a war. And like I said, I'm very, I like people to like me. And so when I was going into bars and stuff in Germany, the people would hear my American accent and come and sit with me and say, so why exactly is your country starting a war? Tell us everything. And I had no answers. I had no idea. I felt so ignorant and I was really ashamed of that. And then the weekend we actually started the war, this was like the turning point where I became a different person. I was in Rome with a couple of friends just screwing around. And we couldn't get back to our hotel because there was a protest of literally a million people protesting our country and protesting the war. And so I found a street that was elevated above this protest and I watched it for hours and hours and hours, just watched a million people mad at my country, which being from the United States, I was told everyone loves us, you know? So that's when I started asking questions. And every time I got an answer, it just led to more and more questions. And I took a lot of that shock really, because everything I thought I knew was wrong, especially as a, I was raised Republican person who voted for this president. I was very angry at the Bush administration for a few years. But as the years went on and I started learning more about how the government works, I realized that nothing that they did, they could have done without Congress. And, um, you know, they fund everything, all the warships, everything is done by Congress. And that's where we were supposed to have our power. And I knew nothing. nothing. I didn't know how it worked. And so I just started paying attention. And now here we are years later, you know, I was one of those people that had some hope in Obama and I'm very disappointed. And it's just kind of exposed the whole two party system as very corporate and very corrupt. And this whole, I, I never intended for congressional dish to be an expose of corporate influence and bills. It just became that because that's what I found in both parties. Yeah, that's where it all came from. It was just, I was kind of shocked into it as a kid. Yeah, it's interesting because I've been abroad, not for an extended period of time, but enough to see other people's opinion of America. And I think it's something that people should do at least once or twice in their lifetime to sort of get out of, it's hard to have an opinion on something when you're literally like in the bubble. Mm-hmm. And so you, you can you have to see something from a distance and from another perspective, because if you only see it from yours, then that's the only opinion you have. You know, there's people that have never, you have grown up and been raised in, in some of these cities in, in America and they live there their whole life. Mm-hmm. So obviously that colors their perspective on how they see the world. Yeah. And it quite honestly is, is a very limiting perspective in a small town perspective, if you will. So I think the fact that you had that opportunity to do that, I think is, is awesome because like you said, it affected you in a profound way to the point where you felt like you couldn't just, you, you could do one of two things at that point, right? Say, okay, well, I don't need to know anything and just continue to keep your head buried in the sand or do what you did and start to ask more questions, even if you're not comfortable with the answers you're getting. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I did try the running away thing. <laughs> I did. For the At record, the end, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I can't say that like this, the road to congressional dish wasn't a bumpy one because in April of 2008, my now husband, we were just dating at the time, but we sold everything we owned and bought one way tickets to go back to Europe because I was just like, America's crazy. I want to get out. And if I can find a way to never come back, like that sounds great to me. So I wanted to bury my head in the sand and seek somewhere else that wasn't, you know, so 
controlled by crazy people. And it turns out that Europe's having the same problem we are. South America's having the same problem we are. Like this, this control by corporations, by, by Wall Street, really. It's a worldwide issue. And so, yeah, I, it's just not something I can escape. And then I, my visa ran out. So we went to Hawaii so that we could earn some money. So for two and a half years, I was living on the beach. I had fun, easy jobs. I was living the life. We were supporting ourselves. It was fine. But the questions didn't go away, you know? Yeah. And like, I found myself like when I was laying on the beach, reading a book, I was still reading about the Bush administration. <laughs> you, know? yeah, you couldn't get away, I, even in Hawaii. I, I couldn't turn it off. Yeah, I tried. I tried leaving the country. I tried just going to an island and just trying to forget it all. It just didn't work. So I came back and decided I was going to do something about it. And this is what I ended up doing. I think it just speaks to something that's inside of you, this natural curiosity to getting at the heart of like of the matter. And there's a, an investigative streak, I think, that runs deep inside you from just from what I can hear from the way you, you tackle your subject matter. It is. It comes from being the daughter of two very stubborn people and we're always right. So it's like, okay. And they're, they're like super Republican though. They, I love my parents dearly, but they are the type of, I shouldn't say this. One of my parents is the type of person that like Republican is their team. So whatever the Republicans do, it just makes perfect sense. And it is what it is. And so then when I would have conversations. It's like, but I have facts. Like I looked this up. Here's, here's a fact. Like this is an actual fact. And so it's like, and it's funny now because now our relationship is we'll talk about politics and we're both on our phones, just fact checking everything that we say. And our conversations have actually gotten really, really good because I am putting in the research. I'm not just making it up, but it definitely comes from the dynamic in my home is where that came from. It's just this innate thing that I just don't want to be wrong even if it means I have to research to make sure that I'm not. And I, I can relate to that because my, my parents are Republican as well. And one of my brothers is. And so obviously when it comes time for the holidays, <laughs> family <laughs> gatherings, you know, there's, the, there's always the, the taboo subjects you're not supposed to touch, uh, politics, religion, and sex. And I think you need to be able to have conversations with people that you disagree with. Mm-hmm. I mentioned this on an earlier interview that I had with uh, Jason Stapleton because he's a, he's a libertarian. And I, I think the point is that you can disagree without being uh, disagreeable or I don't know if that makes sense, but just yeah. without being combative, you know, and just respecting each other's viewpoints, even if you don't agree with them and trying to understand where that person is coming from. But I do get your frustration sometimes when some of the stuff is literally black and white. Like these are the facts. Like, do you not see how this is something that's not good for this country? Yeah. And that can get a little bit frustrating. I mean, one of the things being raised by people that I disagree with so often is I think I've kind of learned the skill that you can love the person and not really see the same way they do. But what I've also learned is that it's probably best to come from the, well, we know we agree on this. So let's go from here. So I always try. Yeah. I always try and find the common ground first. And what I find amazing is that people politically label themselves constantly. It makes me nuts. But then when you start talking about an actual issue and you say, okay, we agree on this, this, and this, let's try and figure this out and not worry if it's conservative or liberal, all of a sudden you can come to all kinds of agreements on the way things should be or something that would work. Like you can tweak out the differences. I got in an argument with a guy today 
You know, he started out by calling Bernie Sanders a socialist and all this stuff. And we got to the point where he supports raising the minimum wage. He supports what Bernie <laughs> Sanders said, but just to 1250, not to 15. Yeah. And it's like, but you were just trashing the guy, calling him names, even though you actually kind of agree with the man. So once we can dump these labels and dump these parties, these parties mean nothing. Yeah. Once we can do that and just see ourselves as one group of Americans, I actually have a lot of hope. And I think our generation, I think the people 40 and under, I think they're kind of ready to do that. I don't know too many people my age that are devoted to party. It's all baby boomers. And, yeah, you know, the olds, but yeah, because yeah. like you said, uh, even with Obama in office, you quickly realized how little power he has to affect the type of broad change that's needed to, you know, reverse some of the, the damage that's been done with uh, the two party system. See, that's where I have a little bit of problem because unfortunately, he has enormous power. He just was full of it when he said he was going to use it to do certain things. And that's the sad truth of it yeah. is that when you look at how it actually works, like the, like NSA spying is a perfect example. A lot of that's being done by an executive order that was written in the, the Reagan administration. He could have stopped a lot of that anytime. He just didn't. And we also have drone bombing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he announced that we were going to bomb Syria and we said no, really the British said no, but like the public made it very clear. We didn't want to bomb Syria a year later. We're bombing Syria. So He's done a lot of the things he said he wasn't going to do. And back in 2008, during the primary, especially with Hillary Clinton, there were signs that this was who the guy was. He was definitely friendly to corporations. He was definitely down with the military industrial complex. The signs were there. Yeah. But now we have the proof. And one of the issues that I'm seeing in a lot of these bills is that Congress is supposed to make the law. But what they do is they say, OK, well, the attorney general needs to make procedures for yada, 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 or the EPA needs to do yada, yada, yada. They're not actually making the policy. They're giving it to the executive branch. So actually, one of the problems that I've been witnessing is that we're giving enormous power to the presidency and enormous responsibility to the executive branch. Too much, too much for them to handle because they're now doing the legislating and the enforcement. And that's how you get lawlessness because we don't have our branch of, of government actually making the laws. They're abdicating almost all of their responsibility. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that point because I think it's an important one. Did you see Citizen Four? No. That's what is the, that? That's the uh, Edward Snowden documentary. Oh, I haven't seen the documentary, but I'm, I've been researching this. Like, yeah, so I'm, I probably will be up on whatever the yeah, Edward Snowden stuff. It's one of those, it's one of those documentaries that's fascinating at the same time as it scares you. Yeah. <laughs> You're just like, wow, this is an awesome documentary. And wow, this is scares the crap out of me that this stuff is actually happening. <laughs> yeah. And it's a sign of a good documentary because it gets you so engaged. And these folks literally were in the hotel room with him as he's right before he's about to release the information. So it's just really, really well done. And, and you're just kind of following it the whole way through. Uh, oh, is that the one that's produced by Laura Poitras? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. I haven't seen it, but I know their story. And that's another thing that's Edward Snowden. I love that he gave us the actual documents. We needed them and we understand what's going on much more. I mean, the Patriot Act right now we're talking on the 29th of May. There are three important sections of the Patriot Act that expire on June 1st, just a couple of days from now. And so the discussion and the votes as to whether or not they're going to reauthorize this stuff is happening Sunday at 1 p.m. our time, Pacific time. Yeah. So, I mean, this is happening in real time. They're actually doing something about it, which 
wouldn't be happening had Edward Snowden not made such a fuss and got people, regular people, aware of what was happening. They would just extend the Patriot Act like they did the last two times. But the thing is, if you wanted to know what was going on, we had this information in 2006. We had everything we wanted to know because there was an AT&T technician who had gotten the the documents that they were installing things called splitters Mm. on the AT&T wires. And what he was saying is it's a dumb device. Like it literally just takes everything that goes over their wires and sends it to the NSA. So the whole time they were telling the country, oh, we're just collecting your metadata. We don't have the content. It's like, but we know the equipment that you used. Of course you have the content because it didn't have the ability to split it up. It was just we take everything. And so that was fascinating to me too, to be able to witness the lies for all these years. And then we get these documents in 2013 and the word catches fire and they're now doing something about it. But it's amazing when you actually watch what's going on in the halls of Congress and you watch the testimony, how much you can find out is going on in this country. It's all there. The problem is we're not looking. Yeah. We're not interested or there's so many distractions that we don't find the time to pay attention to it. It's crazy. It's mind boggling sometimes. Well, and I don't necessarily blame us because I know so many people that watch the news every day. They turn on the TV. They're doing what they think that they are supposed to do to be informed. And honestly, why shouldn't they be able to turn on the news and actually get legitimate news? But instead, what they're getting is campaign polling for an election that doesn't take place for another year and a half. And they're going to follow a missing plane for two months. Our media is doing such a terrible job of keeping us informed because it's all about keeping eyes on the screen and pleasing their advertisers that we're not actually getting the information that's tough to hear. And so as much as people say like, you know, we should be so much more informed about this stuff and we're so lazy. Like I actually don't think the American is lazy or that they don't care. They just don't know where to find this information. I mean, that's kind of why I did Congressional Dish, because I wanted to know what was in the actual bills and had no idea where to find it. I mean, there are, are publications, The Hill being one of them, that is about Congress, but they don't even have reporters that are reading the actual bills. They're talking about the political fights about f- passing the bill, yeah. but they're not actually looking what's in it and seeing if what these congressmen are telling them is actually the truth. And so often it's not. The USA Freedom Act is such a perfect example of that because they're calling it something that ends mass data collection in the United States. It doesn't do that at all. It just privatizes it. So instead of the government keeping all of it in this government built data center in Utah, the telecoms would keep it. And then they would just get secret warrants to get our information. Nothing changes except that we would now be paying Comcast and Verizon to do the storage. And yes, they get paid. So this bill that everyone is saying, like, it's bipartisan. It's past the house. It's the solution to all the spying. No, 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 (laughs) no. And you have to read it to know that stuff. And so that's why I don't really, it's not that I don't hold Americans responsible for not knowing what's going on, but how are they supposed to know what's going on when we have a media that's this dreadful? Yeah, and I think for so long, we've had limited tools at our disposal for getting access to this type of information in a way that allows it to consume it you know, easily. Mm-hmm. And I, that's why I'm so fascinated by what you're doing because I think more of this is going to happen. And I think more people are going to 
take your lead. More people are, you know, there may be people, you know, you, you may team up and say, okay, I'm going to handle, you know, the House of Representatives and I'm going to handle Congress and, or I'm going to focus on energy bills. And, you know, you never know where this can go and, and how this thing can branch off. And I'm really excited by that because you're sort of paving the way. Well, I still can't believe no one had tried this yet. And I think just the sheer <laughs> effort in trying to read <laughs> these bills probably put a lot of people off, but you were, you were undaunted. So that's awesome. Well, and, and the fact that I was able to do it. Yeah. If I can do it, it's not that hard. No, really. to, to read a bill, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. Some of them are just a couple pages. So you just have to have a genuine interest and a passion for just getting the answers out there. Because what you're doing, you're not uncovering secrets, you know, and you're not writing this complex code to decipher these code words that they're using. Like you said, they're using just regular language. But they're burying it so deep. And it's funny, they're burying it deep, but in, but in plain sight, because like, they'll tell you, like, oh, anyone can go read a bill, knowing full well that most people are not going to. Yeah, and that whole read the bill thing, they kept saying that with the Affordable Care Act. And when they shut down the government in 2013 over the Affordable Care Act, I said, all right, screw it. I'm going to read it. Yeah. It took me an entire week. And what I found out is that you can read the first nine sections, which was like... Ugh, like seven, eight hundred pages. It was horrendous. And then section 10 amended the first nine. And I had a full blown mental breakdown. I left the house. I went for like a five hour walk. I was so angry and so upset because I would have had to go back and reread the whole thing. And then I found out that there was this other bill that amended all of that. So what I ended up doing is I kind of had to cheat because there was a packet of information. It was probably a hundred pages thick, but that was prepared for the Senate to help the Senate understand what this bill was. Yeah. So to say, oh, just read the bill. Sometimes, like something with the Affordable Care Act, that's not possible. Because right now, if you were to read the Affordable Care Act, the information that's in there isn't accurate. You have to know where to find the actual terms. And that was... That was a slap in the face. That's what's really difficult about reading current law is that they don't actually take the time or at least Cornell University does take the time and God bless him for it to put it into actual language so that when something is changed, you can go and read the actual law. But when a bill is passed and it becomes law, they don't turn it into one nice and neat bill with all of the information just there. They have all of these edits and you have to like follow this convoluted path to get to the information. It's bizarre. And, and that I think is part of the story. And that's part, like if you listen to the Obamacare episode, you'll hear my frustration in the whole thing and just be like, you know, I think the, the difficulty I had in reading this bill is a part of this story. Yeah. You know? Definitely. Yeah. It's, uh, that must be frustrating. But I think the technology is advancing in a way, you know, podcasts itself, right? The fact that you have a medium that can reach thousands and thousands, and I'm not sure where your, your listenership is now, but the fact that there's so many people that are aware of this topic, by virtue of you being able to record a podcast in your home, yeah. <laughs> using, you know, a mic that costs a couple of hundred dollars, putting it on iTunes, and just like that, like you're increasing awareness of this really, really important topic. And I think people are going to realize that that's what you did. And you're like, wait, how easy, you know, how, mm -hmm. how did you do this? How did you get started? You know, and I don't know if people have started already asking you, like, how can I do this or how can I help? I've gotten a lot of people asking how they can help. I haven't had anybody yet say that they want to copycat. Yeah. And so that's the day I'm really looking forward to. 
but yeah, I mean, podcasts and it's gotten so much easier even since I started a couple of years ago. I mean, the technology is just beautiful and it's become very user friendly. I mean, just look at all the podcasting apps. You know, when yeah. I started getting podcasts on an Android was quite an experience. Now it's not so hard. You just download Stitcher and you're done. So that's becoming better. And then also for the researching of what's going on in the government, it's never been better. I mean, it could absolutely be improved, but had I wanted to do this 20 years ago, I would have to physically be in Washington, D.C., and I'd have to go and read the actual papers if they'd even let me in. And now it's all on the Internet within a day. So it's that makes my job possible. There's now, you know, editing software so that I can highlight what's going on in the Daily Digest and send it to someone else so that they can grab the clips for me and send it back. That wouldn't have been possible a few years ago. And getting all the video of the hearings. This is actually new since I started. There were a lot of hearings that I physically could not watch because they weren't posting the video. They're still not making the MP3s available for download, but I have screencast. So I just, you know, record it as I watch it and I get the clips. And so this technology is making being a journalist or something like a journalist, whatever I am, I don't know what I am, but (laughs) it's making the sharing of information possible in a way that it was never possible before. So I just feel like we're on the doorstep of something beautiful when it comes to holding our our representatives accountable and knowing what they're actually doing. Because this, you know, we Americans, I think, take a lot of flack for how out of control we've let our government get. But we didn't have the access to this information You know, my parents didn't have the access to this information. They believe the TV. To this day, my parents still believe the TV. Our generation doesn't believe the TV. So things are about to change. I just hope they change quickly enough that the laws aren't stacked so much in the Democrats and Republicans' favor that the establishment really does get control of this country forever. I don't think we're there yet, but they're changing the laws quite quickly. So It's funny. What happens is change happens sometimes... Not in the way people expect, because people sort of look back and say, well, I looked back yesterday or a week ago, and I really don't see anything different than then. But sometimes you have to look over a long period of time, like, well, look back six months. How different are things six months ago than they were? And then look back a year. And then some things happen with sort of like a hockey stick, like Mm -hmm. change, you know, really, it's like one day it's this way. And then like over the course of like two weeks, some crazy event happens or some ridiculous thing triggers, you know, some sort of trending event on Twitter or a hashtag or something. And all of a sudden people are like, like a slap in the face, like, whoa, like what, what happened in this span of two weeks? The guy who set himself on fire and was it Tunisia that kicked off the riots and then what was happening in in the Middle East, like the awakening, whatever they Mm. called it. And it was just, you know, one guy that I think wasn't able to, to sell his fruit in the market or something like that. So, I mean, I can't predict what it's going to be. And, you know, I don't know that anyone can, but there's always that these trigger events that cause like this almost like exponential change and awakening. Mm -hmm. And I I think with the combination of the technology and awareness, I think there's more moments that can happen like that now, which is really, really exciting. It is. And it's going to be a lot harder for powers that be to pull off another Patriot Act. Because back in 2001, the towers fell on September 11th. The Patriot Act was signed on October 29th. It was 45 days later. That is lightning speed for a bill of that much consequence. And I just found out that... No one even read it. I didn't know that, but it was a substitute bill at the last minute. And like so many bills that I've seen, apparently these shenanigans have been going on for a long time and no one read that bill. But at the time, 
the internet wasn't what it was now. You couldn't yeah. watch that happen on your computer by watching the three different C-SPAN channels. And I couldn't have shared those clips. I think it's going to become a lot harder for it to be the bad stuff. But then you see something like Occupy Wall Street that happened after the crash. And that's one of those great changes. Yeah. And it happened very quickly. It was just like the entire conversation changed in a way that you say the, the phrase 1% and Everybody knows what you're talking about. And that was a huge thing that happened. It changed the conversation. It changed what people were aware of. And it happened very quickly, just like you said. And I think we're going to have more of those positive moments going forward because so many people that kind of became adults around the 9-11 age and saw, you know, this Bill of Rights that... You know, I was a child of the 80s, Schoolhouse Rock. I was like, I like the Bill of Rights, you know, like I get these 10 things guaranteed. And so when they went and screwed with them, I got mad because I was like, this is the basics of what being an American is supposed to be. And I think our entire generation had that very naive, like, oh, our, our government is great. And I think because we still have those ideals, we're angry enough to where we're actually going to do something about it. We just need to be given the idea that will spread more effectively than Occupy Wall Street did. I love the fact that people did something, but it was so unorganized and didn't use the system to change the system that it didn't actually have any real power effects. And so when it comes to actually making a difference, the one thing that I ask people to do is vote because we're not voting. I found out a stat about California that made me crazy. In the 2014 election, people under the age of 22, so like college age people, 8% voter turnout. Wow. Eight. So it's, it's not something that's interesting to them. And I think until it becomes something that you can show them has an effect on like their future, they're not going to stand up and take notice. Well, that's what I'm trying to do is convince them that it does. Cause it's the only thing that does change things. I mean, the people that showed up to vote in 2014 changed the Senate. That's a big deal you know? And so that, yeah, that irritates me that young people don't vote, but it also gives me more hope than anything because that's a giant untapped voting block. Yeah. It's an opportunity. And it's a huge opportunity. When you talk to people, it's funny because the non-voters in a lot of the ways are the ones that are most passionate about the fact that this country is backwards. And they say, well, we're waiting for the revolution and our, our vote doesn't count. And like all these crazy excuses. And it's like, okay, you can wait for the revolution but just vote in the meantime, Yeah, you know, like it's the one bit of power that you have. And so that's one of my personal missions is to convince more people to vote that are not baby boomers that aren't sucked in the TV. Cause when I go and vote, no matter which state I've voted in, cause I've lived in a lot, no matter which state it's, I am one of the youngest, you know, the people voting there. I was the youngest by about 20 years in 2008 because I worked at the polls. I was the youngest one, hands down. Yeah. And you just watch people come in. And it's like, where are the college kids? Because there's so many of them that could be registered right here in changing this district. They didn't walk in that door. So that's and that's the thing. Once people understand that they can, especially in an off election, presidential elections are hard because there's so much noise about the presidency. That's it is going to be hard to really change something. But if we took a midterm election, which they assume no one really votes in and all of us young people showed up, we could change everything in a day. Yeah. It really, it sounds crazy, but it really is true. You could put so many better people in there. The other half of that equation though, is putting better names on the ballots, which is a legitimate thing that I've heard. It's like, well, we have no one to vote for. And it's like, okay, 
put your yeah. name on the ballot, make yourself an option. So that's another thing. I'm going to do an entire episode because state by state, they've kind of rigged some of them to make it very difficult to get on. So I'll do an episode saying like, this is the easiest state going all the way down to the hardest and tell people how to do that. But I mean, honestly, if we can use this system, which was, it really is a brilliant system. If we can use it to take over our branch of government or even just the house of representatives, cause they control all the money. There you go. Like we can change the laws. That's how it's done. Yeah. I think people underestimate just how much power we have to affect change when we sort of get our shit together and, you know, come together for a common cause and have a plan of attack, you know, not just, you know, random, I'll, I'll do some of this, some of this, and, you know, I'll write my congressman or, you know, or, or I'll choose not to vote. Like all those disparate pieces together really don't do much. But I think to your point, you know, having a concerted effort and hopefully with some of the, the guidance we'll get from your podcast, we'll do a better job of that going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's going to be an easier argument to make now that crowdfunding is a thing. Yeah. Because people understand that you can make a movie or produce a podcast because that's how my podcast is financed. It's all crowdfunded. I don't have advertisers. You know, we can do things now together where it's like your dollar a month. It doesn't really affect you, but you are making this thing happen because there's so many other people doing it too. And voting is the same exact idea. Yeah, that's the hope I have because when I look at the system, the way it was set up, it was really quite genius and I'm not ready to give up on it yet. Yeah. So, and revolution doesn't sound fun to me. Cutting off people's heads and like shooting each other. And that's what <laughs> revolution is. Like, we don't need to do that. Let's try voting first. Yeah. <laughs> and then if that doesn't work, let's move on. But 8% voter turnout. I mean, come it. on, we haven't tried it yet. Yeah. All you need to do is, is watch a couple episodes of Game of Thrones and you realize overthrowing thrones and, and, and monarchies and <laughs> institutions it's, is pretty it's bloody. Pretty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want no part of it. <laughs> That's when I get back on a plane and I'm like, bye. <laughs> yeah. See ya. Back to the beach. You guys have your revolution. <laughs> yeah. Cause some, you mentioned Occupy Wall Street and I think that was, you know, call it maybe awareness mechanism, awareness meme 1.0. And it mm-hmm. was the first time everyone, like you said, had common language to use to sort of figure out this this situation that we were in. So I think more of those types of things are going to happen and people are going to, oh, this is like Occupy Wall Street and that it's bringing awareness to this issue that we need to be focused on. So I, th- I think that's fantastic. So the uh, talk about the, the, the funding because you, you mentioned it and I think it's a great testament because it's funny because a lot of podcasters, they wonder like, how am I going to support my podcast? What am I going to do? so that I can keep podcasting. And something you talked about when you were on ProfitCast is the that episode I listened to a couple of days ago. And you made a very interesting point. You said, if I'm going to actually ask for for funding or, or for donations for this episode, then I really have to feel like I'm providing something of value to the audience so that they feel that their donation, it's like a worthy donation because I'm, I'm providing, she's giving me something of value. So by all means, I feel like I can't help but give back to Jennifer because the extent to which she's providing value and putting in the work is so obvious that it's very easy for me to make a donation. Yeah. The way that I kind of approach the whole thing is that this, I don't want to insult people that have the PayPal button up, but do opinion podcasts because they definitely have a place, you know, and they're entertaining and that's great. But if you're going to go with a donation model, it's effective at least to 
give someone something of value. In my case, I'm giving them information they can't find anywhere else. And all I'm asking is that they return the value they get from that information or the production of the show, the entertainment, all of it, return it to me in some kind of financial form voluntarily. Because one of the things about my show is I don't want to put up a paywall because there are people that need this information. There's a lot of people, pretty much every American of voting age, that needs to know what's going on in Congress. And so I don't want to have to make people pay for that information. So that forces me to do it for free. And then when I'm exposing corporate influence and all the bills, I can't then go and be like, but shop at Walmart, you know, like it just, (laughs) (laughs) no. And plus it takes a lot of time away trying to court sponsors and dealing with sponsors and all of that crap. Like I just don't have time for it. So if my audience is willing to support my show because I'm doing all this work, it's beneficial to them to keep congressional dish going to keep my time freed up to actually keep reading and finding this information for them so that once every two weeks for an hour, they get all of this information, then they can go on with their day. They don't have to pick up a bill. They don't have to read a book. They don't have to watch a hearing. They don't have to do any of this stuff because I've already done it for them and I'm giving them the highlights. So that's one of the things that's been working for me in my model is the fact that I'm providing something that can't be found elsewhere. And if someone has an idea where they're providing something that doesn't currently exist, this model is working out really well for me. And I think it could work out really well for other people because people will pay for something they think enriches their lives. It's harder though when you're doing the type of show that's, you know, really fun. Entertaining. But it's fun, you know, like you're having a good time. You're talking about your favorite. Yeah, there's there's hobby podcasts. Those are going to be really tough to monetize in this fashion. If you do a great job, advertising is a great model. But for the donations, like I think a little work has to go into it to really make it work. Not that like a hobby podcast isn't work. I know that it's work, but (laughs) you know what I mean? Like I think, yeah, I think everyone listening knows what you mean as well. So how long was it before you started to see that the donation model was working and actually began supporting the show? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because for the first year, I didn't even try to make money. I just decided I was going to learn how to do it, see if I wanted to do it, see if there was anything worth talking about in Congress, which is silly now that I know how much. But I didn't know if there was going to be a show here. So for the first year, I didn't even try. So when I finally did start asking for donations, the first donation came in that day, which was amazing. And actually, it wasn't a donation. It was a subscriber. So that was awesome. And it was only... I had hope within the first six months that I will make a legit like career and living out of this. And that hope has only increased with time because I'm, I'm actually doing, I'm doing pretty well for a podcaster, you know, compared to what I was making waiting tables, I'm still making like nothing, but it's getting there. And I think as the audience increases, I've noticed that the subscriptions increase and there's just more people. Like I said, it's a crowdfunded thing. So the more listeners you have, the more people who are willing to pay for something voluntarily. And so, yeah, I think at some point I will be successful with this model. I just need to start caring about marketing because I've done nothing. (laughs) Yeah, I think we'll have to (laughs) chat about that and get you some ideas. Well, that's the thing. I've got ideas for days, but... I don't have the time, you know? Yeah, we'll we'll figure out a way to help with that. And we'll we'll, we'll have to crowdfund some help for you. I kind of like, I guess I listened to the preacher, Rob Walsh of Libsyn. Of Libsyn, yeah. Yes. And I think I I just really like his advice, which is that 
your time should be spent on producing a great podcast. And if it is that good, it'll spread. And my growth has been slow, but consistently steady with those nice little bumps. And, um, I'm already in the top 10%. So it's getting there. It's definitely getting there, but I, I'm looking for Dan Carlin numbers, you know, like, (laughs) are are we all right? Yeah, I'm not aiming small here. <laughs> no, you shouldn't so. because I think the the impact of what you're doing is so great that I think just with each new listener that you get, I just think there's more of an impact per listener. You know, there's some sort of metric I'm trying to get to, but <laughs> that is just so much more value packed into each one of your episodes that that awareness that, that you're bringing on this topic is just so much more valuable with each listener that you gain. I hope so. And I get so many wonderful emails, so many from people that say things along that line, just, you know, cause I kind of need that reinforcement, <laughs> you know, cause I get, I don't know if you feel like this, but every time I release an episode for about a day, I just have constant anxiety. I'm questioning everything that I said, wondering if people are going to get mad at me. Did I sound stupid? Like just a wave of anxiety. So those emails, I need them. And when I'm feeling like that, the emails always help because it's people saying you've helped me understand how the government works. And, you know, I checked out your show notes because my show notes, I link to everything that I find in these Mm -hmm. bills because I don't know if I'm right. So I want people to be able to check. Yeah, and more, and more, more importantly, you don't want, I mean, I hate to take the opposite aspect of it, but you don't want people saying, hey, where are you getting your facts from? Like, how come you're not checking this? And how can you back up what you're saying? Because it'll always be the naysayers, right? And the people who are trying, mm-hmm. the detractors and saying, oh, she, you know, she doesn't know what she's talking about. You know, she's really full of it. And I think you just, you almost have to have the fact-based info on the show notes just to shut those people up. Absolutely. And it feels amazing. It doesn't happen very often, but there was this one jerk on Twitter recently who basically said that, like, why why should we trust anything you say? And I was just like, here's the link to the show notes with a link to every single thing that I said. If you have any questions, let me know. And I could be perfectly like nice about it. And I never heard from the jerk again. And it's just like, and it's like all that work that goes into it for those few people makes every minute worth it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, And I've had people, I actually, those show notes also have helped because I've had people check something that sounded crazy. And in a couple instances, I got it wrong. And so a lot of my episodes, too many of them starts with me going, all right, got to fix one of those mistakes. And, and that's the thing, like having the ability to have other people check my work you know, and no, that's what makes me more confident that my information is accurate because people will tell me if it's not, I've given them every resource I possibly can. And it's been proven that they're willing to check on it. So yeah, it's, I just love people. I love my listeners. I love all of it. It's been such an amazing experience. And I think what's awesome is from a podcasting perspective, it's always great when you realize that the person on the other end of the microphone, the host in this case, is not this perfect robot automaton who mm. who never makes any mistakes, right? People need to relate to other people who make mistakes because we all do, right? No one's perfect. No one's going to get it right the first time. And I think the fact that you're upfront with that and you admit that you had to correct something you know, that you published three weeks ago... I quite honestly, from a podcasting perspective, think people resonate with that and and they connect with you more. Oh, thank you. That's actually very comforting to hear because every time I correct a mistake, I'm just like, 
Oh God, I'm exposing <laughs> myself as just the nobody, like no, clueless I think, I, person I, that I am. <laughs> no, I, I, I think it has the opposite effect, especially for your core audience, because your true fans, your true followers, it just gives them m- more of a reason to listen to you because like, oh man, she's a real person. She's not perfect. I make mistakes. I can relate to Jen because she makes mistakes and you know, I just love her that much more now. And, and I think that it's just endearing. Not, not, not to say you have carte blanche to just write whatever you want on the show notes, but I think, I think it's a good thing. Well, and I hope that people will know that if I make a mistake, I'll correct it. Yeah. You know, like when yeah. has Bill O'Reilly ever said that he's made a mistake? <laughs> Never. Has it ever happened? No, he doesn't do that. Yeah. I don't trust anyone who says that they don't make any mistakes. Exactly. It's, exactly. You know? And so I think it's a testament to the success of the show that you were nominated for an award at the recent uh, New Media Expo. Yeah. And the one before that too. Yeah. So two years running. I'm quite and proud of that. What category was it in? Uh, politics and news. Politics and news. Okay. Yeah. Sam Cedar keeps taking it home. <laughs> <laughs> but. But I got to meet him. So that was fun. And speaking of meeting people, you got to meet Adam Curry. I did. Yeah. Our shows are very similar. And um, well, no, they're not actually. They're not similar at all. But we're interested in similar things. We're interested in how the world works. And their show is all about current events, as is mine. And Adam on his show in particular is the one who reads all the documents. You know, so it's like on a Saturday night, Adam Curry and I are probably both sitting at home, like geeking out on some government stuff that no one else would ever look at. So it's like we have that bond through our shows because we do the same type of nerdy crap. And I think that's why, like, I don't know, we were just so excited to meet each other. I was so excited to meet him in person and I didn't even realize that he was such a big deal. Yeah, he took Um, time out from, uh, again, from the ProfitCast episode and I'll put a link to it so people can hear the full story. I don't want to repeat it here. But in a (laughs) nutshell, Adam Curry interrupted his conversation when he realized you were nearby to come over and say hi to you, which must have been really comforting for you. It was so nice of him. It was very, very nice. I, I figured when I was standing there that he probably would know who I was. I wasn't expecting him to be excited, you know, just because it's a new experience for me to have people that I've never met before be excited to meet me. Yeah. You know, that's a very strange experience. And New Media Expo is the first time that's ever happened because I had two people who listen to my show tweet me and want to hang out. And it was wonderful. And then the Adam Curry thing. And it's just like, it's that first taste of the fact that I'm speaking to actual humans that are getting to know me, but it's a one way thing. And it's really strange, you know, because I could tell that the people that met me were a little nervous in the first few minutes. And it's just like, why? <laughs> <laughs> because they, they know they, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon because they know so much more about you than you do about them. Obviously, you know nothing about them, but yeah. they've listened to you episode over episode and over a period of time, they start to get to know you, 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 you know, your idiosyncrasies and the way you talk and the things you like. And then so when they finally meet you in person, they, they sort of get, to get this feeling that they know you a bit. Well, and they kind of do. Yeah, they do. You know, like anyone who listened to my last episode, I cried about my pet rat, you know, like that's, that's something that most strangers don't know. And it was interesting meeting them because they weren't strangers to me right off the bat. They did know that my husband's name is Joe and there were just things that they knew and yet I know nothing. So as nervous as they were, I was extremely nervous about that dynamic. Yeah. You know, it's, it's very, it's very new to me. It's, it's very interesting. The other thing we have in common is our appreciation for the Joe Rogan podcast. Oh my God. I love him. (laughs) I want to meet him. Well, I mean, I met him. It was, it didn't go well, but like, I, I shouldn't say that he was perfectly nice, but, um, how did you meet him? uh, So 
in 2013, one of my listeners had tweeted Joe and said, this girl reads all the bills. You should have her on the podcast. Joe tweeted back and said, let's do it. So, you know, I scream and I get all excited. I'm like, oh my God, I can't wait to meet Joe. And, and so he sends me a direct message and says, meet me after my show in Boston. Cause I told him I already had tickets. And so I went to the show in Boston I went to the first show. So in order to meet him, I waited until after the second and I waited till I was the last person. So I wouldn't like hold up the line. He had no idea who I was. (laughs) No idea, which he knows like millions of Of people, like quite literally. So yeah, he didn't remember this random chick from Twitter. I don't take it personally, but yeah, it wasn't the the day that I was hoping to be like, (laughs) Hey, so fly out to LA this day. Like that didn't happen. So what, what was the follow up to that? I just kind of left it alone. Like okay. I know his, um, his talent booker Yeah. and Matt told me like not to worry about anything that Joe is notoriously hard to get a hold of. So randomly like two years later, he might just be like, Oh, Hey, book Jen Briney. Like, and he follows me on Twitter. I follow him red band. We follow each other. So it's like, we're in the same universe. Speaking, yeah. yeah. Speaking of the same universe, I, I went to get my hair cut recently and I told my barber I was in the podcast. He's like, oh, oh really? He's like, have you ever heard of Duncan Trussell? And I was like, yeah. He's like, well, he comes in here and gets his hair cut. <laughs> really? So we oh, have Duncan's the- <laughs> another one I'd like to meet. He would probably do your podcast. He has yeah, so well. I think he, he's made the intro and I think uh, has a bigger chance of happening than it did last year. I can say that much. And so I'll put the good energy out for the podcast gods to make that happen. But that would be a fantastic guest because I, I can interview just any podcaster, right? So he's, I love yeah. him. He's favorite. He's one of my favorites. He's absolutely freaking hilarious. Well, and, and he's all about podcasting. And from the people I know that know him, he's apparently just the nicest guy yeah, in the world. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that as well. And uh, Chris Ryan's another one I want to get on. So I think I've met him. Yeah. Okay. But I don't know, <laughs> which is be, embarrassing think, for me. I, think, I don't know. Yeah, I think you two might have an interesting conversation as well. So if yeah. I, if, well, so, I can talk to anybody. So, so if I land either one of those two, I'll put in the good word for you. Nice. <laughs> that would be fun. Yeah, because I come to L.A. all the time. In fact, I'm, um, I'm going to go and meet Cara Santa Maria, who's also yeah, in Los Angeles. That's right. Yeah, I'll be doing her show in June. So, okay. yeah, you're in the best place for podcasting. Yeah. My there's God. A little bit of a podcast universe here. I think there's like a whole entrepreneurial podcast universe in San Diego. But here's mm-hmm. the, the comedy podcasts. So L.A. Podfest is coming up soon. So. I don't know if you're, you should probably try to get out for that. I went last year actually and it was more of a fan event, like really the best. Well, I, I was also there for my college reunion, so I didn't spend a ton of time there. I shouldn't really dismiss the whole thing, but yeah, it was more of a fan based thing and there was no political aspect to it, which has been really interesting to me because some of the really popular podcasts, no agenda DC or, um, common sense with Dan Carlin and hardcore history, like those type of podcasts are very popular and yet we're never invited to go to these type of hmm. podcasting sessions. Like it's just, it's either comedy or business and that's yeah. it. I, so, I think it, it might be good from a networking perspective and just trying to engage with some of the folks there. And, you know, it's just well, one of those things. Thing. It was yeah, a that, fan. It was very fan based. Yeah. So I got to hang out with Rick Calvert, who's like the head of NMX. So yeah. I guess that, you know, that was a good networking thing, but yeah, I don't know if I want to go this year. So. We'll see. I'm not sure. Podcast movement, though, I'm going to. Are you going? Yeah, I'm going. Good. Yeah, yeah I'm excited I went, I went for that last one. Year. I went last year, and it's really the chance for us podcasters to just geek out. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's cool. It, so we'll get to chat again there. Yeah, definitely. We'll hang out. 
Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, so I mean, it's such a small universe, you know, podcasters that I think we. I was talking about this with someone on an earlier interview. Like, we all tend to want to help each other, and we won't see each other do, really, really do well. Yeah, definitely. But you're right that there are two groups right now. And what I like about this year's podcast movement is they seem to be consciously trying to merge yeah. the two because yeah. there is like the business group that I saw at New Media Expo and podcast movement, yeah. but the comedian group is completely left out of it. But now we have Aisha Taylor and the chick from Serial be there. So yeah. they are trying to merge the two because my target audience, honestly, is more in the comedian realm because I'm trying to reach these young people who aren't voting. You know, so it's like to get onto the podcasts that they're listening to that aren't necessarily political. That would be amazing for me because I'm trying to get these young people that aren't involved in politics. Right now, I'm getting a lot of people that are already interested. I'm trying to get the people that aren't, you know, and trying and, to and tell I think, them. And I think historically, comics, like when you think about cutting edge comics and really being provocative, you know, when you think of folks like George Carlin and Richard Pryor and, you know, back in the day, Lenny Bruce, like there would be these comics who had something to say and had mm-hmm. statements to make about the state of the world that we live in. And, you know, with the thin veil of comedy to help get the message out, you know, that was like almost the most effective venue for communicating some of the issues that you were just, you had just had to laugh at because they were so ridiculous. Yeah, it's a beautiful way of exposing absurdity. Joe yeah. Rogan is the master of it. One of his most recent episodes was with Natasha Leggero, yeah. which I laughed like the whole time. I love her. But they were kind of talking about that too. She called Joe a political comedian and he dismissed that. But he absolutely is because he makes you think about really big picture things. And I don't think he's trying to do it on purpose. His mind just goes there. He just has a natural curiosity for that sort of stuff. Absolutely. But he's so effective at making you see things from his point of view because he'll have you just laughing at how stupid your own ideas are. You know, I just I love that about his comedy. And I love when he has some of those like expanding your consciousness guests on there, folks like Graham Mm -hmm. Hancock and Alex Gray. Uh, They get into some crazy rabbit holes and those are some of my favorites because they're just touch on topics that are that are really near and dear to me and he just comes at it with a genuine genuine sense of curiosity and and he really he, he's just a like almost like a this renaissance guy because he's got he's into mixed martial arts and pool and float tanks <laughs> yeah he's into and, what yeah, he's into everything so it's really really fun so yeah he was actually very influential for me to actually get the courage to start the podcast because okay. he encourages everyone to start a podcast, yeah, you yeah, know, like anytime someone's an idea, you should have a podcast about that. And so he kind of talked me into it that anyone can do it. And what do you have to lose? You know, and I'll always be thankful for that. I just really hope at some point I get a chance to have a conversation with him because it would I'm, just be so fun. Me and everyone else in the world. But <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer in people and uh, listeners have heard this before, but I'm a huge believer in intention and putting out to the universe. Like you almost act like it's already happened. And it's like, thank you universe for that fantastic interview that I had with Joe Rogan, because it was really like a dream come true for me. So I think if you do that, then I think there's no way it can't happen. I think it will. I, I think know, it will. I, know, I, know, I mean, he I know was already interested. Yeah. I think it will. And so. the thing is, I'm actually really lucky because when we had that Twitter conversation, it was two years ago. 
before I knew I wanted to do this, before I was making any money in it, before my husband lost his job and we had to move across the country, had I had the type of audience bump that a Joe Rogan appearance would bring, I don't know if I'd still be doing it because that's an enormous amount of pressure. And just from getting a bump of a few thousand after doing a Reddit AMA that made it to the front of the front page, that influx of people, which is like, nothing compared to what a Joe Rogan thing would do. But that influx of people was very tough for me to manage. So I actually think that it's better that it's kind of slowly increasing. It's a good pace for me. I can kind of gather myself as I go. Cause it's very, it's a very strange thing to do to talk to thousands of people while you're physically sitting by yourself, you know, and to have people come back and like have opinions about things you say and the things you do. And some of them very angry, (laughs) you know, I'm still, I'm still figuring out how to manage that whole situation. I'm sure you'll figure it out at the time when you're supposed to. And like you said, everything for a reason. So it wasn't meant to be earlier. And so when it does happen, not an if, but when it does happen, I think you're, you're going to have these two additional years under your belt and, and handle it pretty professionally. Well, and the show is so much better. Yeah. You know, two years ago, it was not, it wasn't good. I listen to those and I just cringe. Like yeah, everybody we all do. does. Yeah, we all do. <laughs> but now I'm, I'm genuinely very happy with the vast majority of the episodes. Some of them I get a little, a little emotional, a little crazy, but um, I'm working on controlling that. But when you cover politics, sometimes they just make things snap in your brain. Yeah. So. And, and, I, and I think that's, I mentioned earlier, that's one of the things that drew me to your show because... You know, when you think about a political podcast, you're like, well, that's going to be pretty dry. But right away, you can tell that you had a passion about your topic. And that's why I was just so happy. And and I knew right away, you know, we we met briefly and then I listened and I was like, yeah, I got to have her on. We got to talk. And I think the fact that we're pushing an hour plus, you know, 20, almost 20, hour 20, which which I haven't done recently. I've done this a couple of times, I think is a testament to the fact that we could probably go on for like another two hours, but at some point we should probably (laughs) wrap it up. And uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to, to come on. Oh, it was my pleasure. It was very fun. So where's the best place for folks to track you down online? So the show is called Congressional Dish, and you can find it at congressionaldish.com. And then, of course, the podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, all those places. But then there's also a free Congressional Dish app. So for all you Android users, highly recommend you go to the Google Play Store or whatever they call it and download the app. And then you can also access the show notes from the app itself. And you can tweet out the episodes and you can contact me. So the app is great. And um, that's for Apple and Android. Well, thanks again. And and I think the combination of technology is going to make things so easy that at some point it would be nice to have some sort of form that can be pre-populated from your content that folks can send to their congressperson, for example. So, so like, hey, Jen, Brian, you just talked about this on an episode. What are you doing about it? You know, I, I think that would be pretty cool. You know, what's funny is I have a very good friend who's working on an app that would do something very similar there to that. So <laughs> great <laughs> we're minds, getting there. Great, great minds think alike. <laughs> Totally. (laughs) All right, Jen. Thanks. Have a fantastic weekend. You too. Fantastic conversation. Like I told you at the top of the show, anything we can do to help her out. She gave her contact info. I'm going to be reaching out to her later on, just sharing everything that I'm doing around social media with podcast junkies, because I think what she's doing is super fantastic. And I really look forward to the day when she's just doing this full time and the support is coming in and the donations are coming in and it's really that something she really doesn't have to worry about trying to have another job to get the bills paid. This is really everything she does and 
I can't imagine her putting more of herself into it than she does now, but I imagine she'll, she'll definitely find a way to double down on that effort if it comes to that. As far as this show, podcastjunkies.com slash iTunes, it'll take you to the iTunes application directly. First thing you want to do is subscribe. And the next thing is to leave a five-star rating and review. If it's less than that, then that's cool too, because I'm all about constructive criticism. I'm really just trying to increase awareness of the show so it can be found easier on iTunes. And I think as a community as a whole, we should always try to be increasing awareness of podcasts. I myself always am talking to Uber and Lyft drivers and asking them, do you know about podcasts? And inevitably it ends up with me giving them my card and having them subscribe to my show because why not? So maybe this week you guys can try that out. Just find one person who doesn't know anything about podcasts and get them to subscribe to your show, your favorite show, my show. (laughs) But something that just builds the family because I think those that are in the podcasting community know that we're a pretty tight group and we just all try to help each other out whenever we can. So to sign up for my email list, to stay up to date with the episodes when they come out and a couple of other random musings every now and then, I've made it a bit easier to sign up. Just send a text message straight from the phone that you're listening to this show on to 33444 and just send the one word, Podcast Junkies. So Podcast Junkies together, no spaces, one word, text that to 33444 and you're going to be immediately signed up. So I think that's it for today hope you enjoyed the show. I definitely enjoyed having you listen and really, really appreciate your support. Have a fantastic week.